we have a special announcement to make. The Sake Future Summit, after a two-year absence, is back. The Sake Future Summit is a celebration of all things sake and shochu and awamori and gathers experts from around the world to peer into the looking glass and predict what will happen in the worlds of Japan's indigenous drinks over the coming years. It's being held on January 8th and 15th from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Japan time. For more information, check out sakefuturesummit.com. Again, all one word, sakefuturesummit.com. But wait, there's more. Yours truly will be emceeing the show. In addition to running the show on both Sundays, I'll also be hosting a roundtable about Japan's indigenous spirits, awamori and shochu. Just like a couple of years ago, it will be very educational and entertaining. Eight sessions over two Sundays. Don't miss it. So don't forget January 8th and January 15th from 8 a.m. Japan time at sakefuturesummit.com. Kanpai! Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Okinawa, Japan. And with me in Fukuoka is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're also very lucky to have our editor, Rich Pav, with us here today. And Rich, where are you? I'm in Shizuoka. In Shizuoka, Japan. We are both, Stephen and I, certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we're always more than happy to answer questions about our favorite drinks. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades, and we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how you doing? I'm doing all right, Christopher. This is my last official duty of 2022. After this, I'm taking a few days off, but very excited to to finish up episode 50 of Japan Distilled. Episode 50, two seasons, nearly in the bag. Who would have thunk it that we'd make it all the way through two seasons, right? Yeah, I'm proud of, of ourselves and uh, hopefully our listeners have enjoyed season two and of course more to come in season three. Uh, and today we're doing something a little different. It's our first... Normally you would say AMA or ask me anything, but it's an AUA, ask us anything. And of course, this is a recorded podcast. There's no call-in number, but we solicited questions over the last few weeks uh, through social media. And I think we've got some good ones. And to help us out today, our editor, Rich Pav, will be asking the questions and we'll be providing whatever answers appear in our brains. So welcome back to the show, Rich. Good to be here. It's been a while. How you been? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. I'm I'm just slowing down for the holidays. I'm not taking a break, but I'm doing less. Yeah, we all need a break of some sort, I think. And uh, I guess it was almost, uh, well, one year ago, we had you on the show for a conversation, kind of our parent-teacher conference review of season one to see if there's anything we did well or did wrong. Uh, but then, of course, you were our guest voice for the Yamato Zakuda episodes, which really appreciate that. I thought you did a fantastic job. So yeah, thanks. Welcome back. Thanks. That was fun. And I think just so everybody knows, I think it should be pointed out that Rich is at least partly responsible for both Uncanny Japan and Uncanny Robot, two amazing podcasts that if you need some 
new things to check out during the off time, during the holidays, then definitely give those a listen. No question. I love Uncanny Robot. Yeah, I'm sorry we haven't put out an episode lately, but we're concentrating on stuff that pays the bills. <laughs> no worries. Okay, so why don't we get started? Please. Sounds good. Let's start off with some patron questions. Chris Gillespie asks, if you were to reflect on your Japanese spirit's journey over the decades, have you had any strong opinions or beliefs that have changed over time? And anything that would surprise a younger Stephen or Christopher? Wow. Yeah, you've been on this journey longer than me, Christopher, so I'm going to let you start with that one. Well, I guess as with everything in life, it's the realization time and again that you just need to keep an open mind to everything and that where innovation is possible, innovation will transpire it at some point. It's helpful to be open to that, even if you don't generally or eventually end up agreeing with it or even liking it, it's good to just allow yourself the space, just you know, shut up and listen. I think that's one of the the major lessons we learn more and more as we age and let people do their thing and try it. Don't cast too many aspersions and just be supportive as much as you can and allow people to innovate in which, whichever and whatever way they see fit. Sure. I know that's, that's life lesson for sure. I think for me, there are no absolutes, I think is one way to say it. Of course, there are guardrails around traditional Japanese spirits, but there was also a lot of innovation and, and not everything works every time. And I think part of my discovery of that is that some of the most beautiful Japanese spirits are made by very big distilleries. As much as we talk about craftsmanship and we love the craft shochu and awamori, there's some absolutely beautiful products made at scale. Just because something's made by a big distillery doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy it. It might just be easier to get and more affordable, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Next question from Carrie Conan. On average, how long do you think it takes to develop a new product at the distillery to the point of being ready to sell? It revolves around a number of variables, obviously. I think this goes without saying that it just depends on the complexity of the new brand that you're trying to develop. Let's say, for instance, a distillery wants to isolate a new type of yeast, which Chuko Distillery has done quite a deep uh, a bit of in Okinawa, they will start to start that process of trying to isolate the yeast strain with a private laboratory. And that will take a minimum of a couple of years. Then working to figure out the best way to use that in an Awamori brand, what's the ratio of rice koji to water and how long does that fermentation take and aging and all the other things. So years, I think, probably on average, and that doesn't even factor in the amount of risk that's involved and whether or not there are generations of the family above you that might block <laughs> anything new and different and interesting that you're trying to come up with. So I think maybe average would be at least a season or two. Yeah, it's funny because I think, again, going back to my previous answer, there are no absolutes. If a distillery decides to work with a new sweet potato and they keep everything else in place, they could release it three months after they make it because they need to sell it. They're paying tax on it when they make it. This, this applies more to smaller makers. But I think you certainly have those risk takers who are going to be like, all right, I made it, I'm going to sell it and it'll be a new brand. And it might just be a one-time brand. It might not come back if it's, if it's not popular. 
But then, of course, as Christopher said, you have the much more thoughtful approach, which is, all right, we're going to establish a new brand. We're going to change the yeast. We're going to mess with our mash bill. We're going to change our formulation. And then it could be years of experimentation before you get to the point where you've got something that you want to produce at scale. But then you've got somebody like Shiraishi down in Kagoshima. He just throws stuff at the wall and sees what sticks and puts it in a bottle. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, a lot of thought goes into his branding and everything for those products. But there's, uh, I think, much more quick innovation. He's almost in a 100 plus year old distillery, but they're very much in almost a startup mindset. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, we got our main brand. We're going to make a bunch of other stuff too. Kerry again asks, what is your favorite Family Mart snack? They make the mala peanuts, don't they? I think that's my favorite. They're they're Chinese spiced peanuts and they're a fantastic otsumami for drinking with some, uh, or for enjoying with some awamori or shochu. Eh, sorry, wrong answer. <laughs> famichiki. Famichiki. Thank you for playing. Right. Spicy famichiki. <laughs> oh, was it, this was a true or false kind of thing? This is, this, are we being graded on this? No. <laughs> famichiki is, is a very good answer. I agree. Um, I haven't had that alongside sh- spicy fami- famichiki is, is quite good. You wouldn't want to eat that too often, too frequently, unless you're looking for um, some heart issues. But I also like the um, chocolate-covered um, puffed barley, the mugi choco that comes in a little bag because that goes really well with barley shochu. So I'm kind of a fan of that. That's an old-school snack that a lot of people will, you know, kind of find to be natsukashi or kind of um, old-timey memory from childhood. And also, just give me a bottle of sparkling water, the tansan, and I'm good to go. Yeah, it's pretty ubiquitous in your in your arsenal. You've got a bottle of soda with you everywhere I see you. Pretty much back pocket, back left if you want to steal it. I can't put soda bottles in my back pocket, in my trousers. Because your butt's oblong. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Okay, moving on. We have some questions about uh, the spirits you can't drink, the ghostly spirits. Sakamichi Brewing. And the question is, what's your favorite yokai? Christopher? Um, I don't know. I don't, uh, <laughs> Do you know any yokai? I, uh, Christopher does not. Oh. That's a hole in Christopher's knowledge. Um, his foundational knowledge about Japan has a gaping uh, crevice where the yokai should reside. Uh, well, now we all know what podcast you don't listen to, Christopher. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> and I do uh, listen to Uncanny not. Japan. But I'm not sure that I have a favorite. Is Tengu a yokai? Is that fair? Yeah, sure. Okay. Then that's my favorite because there are shochu brands named after Tengu. Yeah. You know what? That beer that was made in Brooklyn, uh, the Tengu's Tattoos mm. from <laughs> Brooklyn Brewing Company. Uh, it's got our Uncanny Japan logo on the can. Oh, very cool. Get out. Collaboration beer. Yep. Ghost beer. We got to find some of that. We found some in Shizuoka. It was a little bit more expensive than regular beers. How was it? It's a sour beer, and I've never had one of those before. So it almost tasted like something you'd drink for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't drink it for breakfast, but it tasted like, <laughs> it was like alcoholic grapefruit <laughs> juice. If you like sour beers... um, yeah, it's a good it's a good beer to try. Just don't be surprised when that first gulp and it doesn't taste like a like your average craft beer. Sure, I think we'll sure. come back to this later in the in the conversation because there's a beer question later on. So okay, talk about sour beers then. 
Okay. We have one more ghostly spirits question. Joe from the Ishikawa Summit to Sea podcast asks, which spirit is better, Shochu or Casper the Friendly Ghost? I'm going to say that Casper would probably make an excellent designated driver. So I don't want to discount that, but... I think his hands would go right through the wheel. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Maybe I'm going to lose this argument on a technicality, but um, my opinion, I'm still going to get there, which is that Shochu's better. Yeah, I think I'd want clarification of what, what is meant by better because if you're talking about like being a good person versus quality I don't know it's a, it's a tight race yeah well if you're going to say which one's a better friend that's a tight race sure oh fair that's, well in that case it definitely showed you okay I haven't seen Casper in years <laughs> alright problem solved yeah he ghosted <laughs> me too <laughs> okay uh, can we move on to the next question Let's Absolutely. do it. We're going, moving back to distilled spirits, not spooky spirits. Casey from the Bean Pod podcast asks, what's your holy grail of booze? Ooh. I thought this was an interesting question because if you think about the story of the holy grail, it's that unobtainable mythical thing, this mythical chalice that supposedly existed and had magical properties and that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily... Like, what's your favorite or what's the best that you've had? It's what or what would you love to have that you've never been able to try? That's how I think mm. about it. And for me, that would be pre-war awamori. Ooh. I'd love oh, to boy. be able to taste something that was made back in the early 20th century, maybe even 19th century. Uh, unfortunately, to our knowledge, none of it exists any longer. But that would be my holy grail of booze, I think. Yeah, that's a good answer. Very good answer. I would give a limb or two for a sip. My answer to that question, the holy grail, I think I'm going to stick with Stephen's journey back into the past. And if we're in that time machine, I actually don't need to go all the way back to pre-war. I think I just want to go back to like 60s, 1960s, 1970s sweet potato shochu production because I would really love to experience what it was before shochu hit it big outside of Kyushu. I want to Go back to the the real funk, the funk that turned off generations of, of <laughs> children, of old men in this country. That's what I want to smell. I want to experience it. I want to sit at the table and eat my dinner alongside it. But that's also something that, to our knowledge, doesn't exist anymore. It might be possible in some off-the-beaten-path secondhand shop, right? There might be bottles of it in, in the storage, in the floor of grandpa's house. Sure. But right. the, the problem with those, and I've tried a number of them, is that they mellow out so much in the bottle, ah. the volatiles just completely go round and smooth on you, and then it and it loses a bunch of its alcohol as well through evaporation. So you really do want that time capsule of like what it tasted like when they made it? Yeah, I'd really want to be there when it's made, drink it fresh, yeah. The thing about pre-war Okinawa Awamori do you think it would definitely be better than modern Awamori? Could you invent a time machine, go back in time, and then be thoroughly disappointed? I think it's certainly possible, but the stories were that there were hundreds of years old Awamori. Now, these would have been made in the Shitsugi method where they're, they're blending in newer spirit as they're drinking through the old spirit. But it's a little bit like a, the, a, a vinegar mother or the the tare at a yakitori restaurant, like sauce at the yakitori restaurant where it's been, they've been making yakitori there for 75 years and that pot's never been empty. 
So there's some 75 year old sauce in that pot, right? Some, yeah. some molecules of it. And the Shitsugi method with Awamori is very similar that you're probably still getting some 100, 200 year old spirit in that sip. And that's what I want to try because nothing that exists that we're aware of has been aged that long. There really wouldn't be anything more than about 70 years old right now. Okay. Then the answer to my question is definitely no. Right. I would assume there's no way of knowing. And I'm sure that there was rough, almost undrinkable awamori being made pre-war, but then the stuff that was being kept by the royal family and was considered currency uh, is the stuff that I'd want to be able to taste because that sounds magical to me. So when we get in the time machine, we're going to need to bring a battering ram, <laughs> some sleeping potion, and uh, I don't know, something else to get into the into the storehouse to get at that stuff. That sounds like the plot of a good movie. You know where else we need to go along the same lines? We need to go to Peoria, Illinois <laughs> and get a hand on Takamine's Koji whiskey before it was uh, blended into other stuff. Good call. Yep. Roll a couple of those casks down the road when nobody's looking and onto the back of a U-Haul truck. We need to bring that with us too, I guess. Probably a, a era appropriate U-Haul truck. Yeah, sure. <laughs> It'll look pretty, pretty obvious rolling down the road in a, <laughs> in a modern U-Haul in 1922 or whatever. 1895. Okay, Casey's on a roll. He's got another question. If you could only drink one alcoholic beverage for the rest of your life, what would it be? Zima. Huh? Wait, who said that? <laughs> Can you make a uh, like a wrong answer buzzer sound right there, Rich? Okay. <laughs> the bots of the game sound? Yeah, um, exactly. No, definitely not Zima, although it is available here in Japan still, which will bring back memories for a lot of folks of our generation, uh, particularly in the United States. Um, I don't know. I need to think about that for a second. Steven, how about you? Yeah, it's one alcoholic beverage so it, that gives us options for everything. Um, but I don't know if it means a category or a specific style, like shochu is a category. So if I said shochu, then I've got lots and lots of options. Just like if I said wine. Right. Right. Lots and lots of options, beer, lots and lots of options, but that's kind of almost unfair to play it that way. So maybe it's a specific style of a specific or a specific mash bill, perhaps. To me, an alcoholic beverage would be one particular brand of bottle something that comes in a bottle oh shoot that oh, severely wow. limits it okay or a can there you got bottles or cans all right well definitely bottles well or ceramic pots yeah i think i'm drinking again i'm, I'm going back to long age that one i think if i had to choose yeah. one it would probably be the probably the chuko 15 year that comes in ceramic pot that would, that would probably be my my choice bougie all right. I think that I'm going to have to go with something that I can afford regularly. Oh, we have um, to pay for so, it? <laughs> I don't think you just get a lifetime <laughs> supply of it if you oh, agree to drink only that, only that. I, I misunderstood Which, the question. You go, you, no, you go ahead and piss away your savings. That's cool. Um, <laughs> it'll, expensive pee, is, is, uh, as they say, right? That's so right. let's see what... I think I'm going to go with Manazuru <laughs> just yeah, because yeah. it's so, you can drink it straight, you can drink it on the rocks, you can drink it with hot water. I've never had it on Sawari, but Manazuru sweet potato shochu, that's my thing. It's hard to get though, so I'm going to have to stock up on it late every year when the storks start or the cranes start flying. There you I go. would choose something you could mix with other flavors. So I'm just going to say I'm going to stick with Koryu shochu. 
And wow. Yeah, because you mix with anything. And it's cheap. That's true. It's dirt yeah. cheap. It's cheaper than dirt. <laughs> it would give you more variety. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, because if you have to drink the same sh- uh, the same alcoholic beverage all the time, I would start drinking a whole lot less because I would get tired of it. Sure. Well, okay. probably, yeah. And apparently I won't be able to afford mine. So. <laughs> all righty. All right. Uh, next question. Oh, Craig Hoffman. Is there really that much difference in taste based on price, especially in the mid-range and mid-quality spirits in Japan? I feel I have often overpaid for some over the years. I think this is a great question. Mid-range means how much? Yeah, I think you've got, obviously you got your super cheap plastic jug stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your your premium. It's really only for gift giving in my mind. And so the middle is probably, depending on what drink you're talking about, or what spirit you're talking about, somewhere in the maybe 1,500 yen to 5,000 yen price range, maybe. I'm going up to 5,000 yen because that's basically what you're going to pay for a non-age stated Japanese single malt now. And I think those would still be that mid-range uh, category. I'll let Christopher speak to Shochu because I think I know what his answer will be. But I would say generally right now in Japan, you're overpaying for malt whiskey. Definitely. What I would recommend is you find a distillery that you like and focus on their whiskeys and understand their line. And you'll realize how far down their line you can go before you don't like with their botany. And so an example for me is Mars. I, I've developed a pretty strong affinity for Mars whiskey over the last couple of years. And their premium stuff is fantastic. And then when I get down into their Cosmos range, which is their blended whiskeys, which in, imported scotch and maybe a little bit of their own malt or grain, it's still good. And so I can drink their mid-range without being disappointed. I can't necessarily do that with Suntory or Nika products. When I get into their blended range, I'm not a huge fan. So I think it depends on the maker, but it's fine that maker that you like, that you enjoy their their premium stuff and then work your way down their portfolio to find your floor. That's, that's how I might think about it on the whiskey side. And then for gin, I think there's a lot of pretty high quality Japanese gin available now. And it's not very expensive unless you get into the kind of super premium Kinobi in that range, but there's some some excellent gins down in the 2,000, 3,000 yen price range. So yeah, at least if you're buying them here in Japan, right? Yep. I think I think Japanese rum is a relative bargain, apart from Nine Leaves, which is a premium product. But virtually every other Japanese rum is is really affordable. So mm-hmm. how about you on the on the shochu and awamori side, Christopher? My take on it, and I think Stephen probably agrees with this, is that shochu and awamori that at least in Japan, is painfully underpriced. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you're you're rarely overpaying for it. The only time you're overpaying for it is when you get into the the limited production stuff like the 3Ms whereby, especially Morizo, for instance, where uh, it's so famous and production is so limited in terms of the volume that's released from the distillery per annum that you're just dealing with orders of magnitude of price inflation and premiumization. And, you know, there you're chasing something that isn't really available to anyone. So I guess maybe maybe it's not overpriced because it's just priced by the market. But everything, pretty much everything else is pretty fairly priced. And like, I mean, uh, most of the stuff that I enjoy drinking, I would pay a lot more for, quite honestly. And many of the brands that we've mentioned on this show over the last two years, I would pay more for. 
<laughs> and something that I would love to see happen in the future is for the prices for shoju and aomori internationally coming down, but the prices for shoju and aomori domestically coming up to find some harmonization there, to find some equilibrium of some sort. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, given all the fees and the taxes and the middle people that are involved, but one can always hope, I guess. Yep. I, I would uh, just maybe add to that a little bit. I think if you listen, if you figure out what style of shoju or aomori you like, and you go and you listen to our episodes of on that specific style, whether it's sweet potato or barley or rice or cocoa sugar, listen to the brands that we recommend because we're not recommending those super expensive, super hard to find brands. They might be hard to find because they're made in limited quantities, but they're they're priced so fairly. So you can get some pretty amazing drinks just by jotting down those brands or checking the the uh, the show notes for those episodes to see the bottle bottle of pictures and things. Yeah. I think that's one way to, to find relative bargains in, in Japanese spirits. All right. Next question. Uh, this is somebody whose mom named him coffee or shochu. Yeah. Well, what is it? What, what is that? A <laughs> podcast? I think it's a, uh, it's a Twitter handle. Okay. All right. For those traveling to Japan, are there any domestic or rare export bottles you would recommend to buy and bring home? We can assume space for only one or two bottles in a suitcase. It could be anything, shochu, whiskey, rum, etc. That's such a great question. If you could only bring two bottles home, what would you take? I I liked your riff on Mars before. A, a bottle of Komagatake, one of their kind of annual releases, their mm-hmm. vintages might be a good good thing to bring back. That is, except those are usually available overseas and not terrifically expensive. Oh, okay. I've only seen them in a couple of places. Yeah, just because Mars is not as well known as as Nika or Suntory, I think that there's less demand, and they're not age stated for the for the limited editions or the annual editions. Mm-hmm. But that, that's not a bad. That, that was on my mind as well. I think one thing that's not yet being exported, as far as I know, as far as whiskey goes, is Akeshi. This is a peated Scotch from up in Hokkaido, and their bottles, their full size bottles, are starting to appear in liquor stores around Japan. And I have not seen those brands available overseas yet. So that might be a good whiskey. On the shochu front, I think you're looking at a limited release from one of the handmade shochu makers. That to me would be where you're you're going to hit your sweet spot. So for example, if you can find it, the Mushagaishi Black Label. Mm-hmm. 10 years agent ceramic, they release what, 50 to 100 bottles every 5 to 10 years, it seems like. Really, really limited releases. But if you find one on a liquor store shelf, it'll be five, six, seven thousand 7,000 yen for 1.8 liters. Yeah. So I think that's the sort of thing to look for. And of course, um, Christopher mentioned Manazuru earlier. I think that would be a great bottle to bring home uh, if you can find one. And things along those lines. Yamato Zakura Takumi, right? His uh, his clay pot aged, very lightly filtered sweet potato shochu. Yeah. Those might be the kinds of things you'd want on the on the shochu side. How about Awamori, Christopher? Any, any Awamori, uh, since you're in Okinawa? Now, I know we're both a fan of um, Nico Nico Taro, which is not expensive, but not always on the shelf in every shop because it is a really small distillery out on Miyako Island. Mm-hmm. I also like, um, in terms of awamori that aren't just available everywhere, so we're basically Xing out a bunch of the medium to larger makers, there's plenty of quality to be enjoyed in Miyano Tsuru, 
uh, which is made by Nakama Distillery. That place had a couple of years off. I think they were they were basically dormant. And they're sort of back online again, and they make really good awamori that is not easy to find. So if you if you do find it, you've got a little bit of a treasure in your hands. It just so happens that there's, of all the places, the best place to get it near here where I'm staying right now is across the street at a Lawson convenience store, <laughs> which for some reason, whoever manages that place must have been high school buddies with the guy who makes this stuff. And he gets it. He gets a couple shelves of it that are super, super affordable. He actually charges the, the fair market price for it. Whereas, generally on the secondary market, it, it's at least twice or three times that. If I may be so bold as to do a little bit of coaching where duty free shopping is concerned, I would actually stay away from the vast majority of the shoju and awamori that's available in international airports in Japan. That which is available, and I'm not going to name any brand names, but it's one of the it's the, you know one of the biggest brands in the country in the world even probably, but they mark up their prices ridiculously high. Um, you can get the same thing for cheaper in a convenience store, mm-hmm. so it may be duty free, but it's not markup free. They put it in a bigger bottle than is available in Japan, but or at least their standard offerings. But still, it's uh, a pretty healthy markup. It's kind of kind of hilarious if you look at it and you know what it's what it's worth on a regular shelf. Um, otherwise there's not a whole lot of quality that normally is is shifted over into duty-free sales. And I think the same goes for the sake world too. I don't think you really should be saving your uh, last minute shopping for the airport unless you really are shopping for somebody who knows nothing about anything. What you need to do is wh- whatever city you're spending time in is go find a uh, r- the most reputable liquor store that specializes in whatever it is you're trying to hunt down, and uh, you should have some some really good selections available at fair prices. Probably the only real reason these days to join Twitter is to be able to kind of pull the folks. Uh, you know, in your community or the folks living in Japan and saying, hey, I'm going to be in Kobe or I'm going to be in Kyoto. I'm going to be in Fukuoka. What's the couple of top quality liquor stores that are going to have a great selection of of Japanese spirits? And then you go there, I think. Makes sense to me. All right. Next question. Davey in Japan. What is the go-to drink on the Shinkansen? I maintain beer, but sake cups, chew high, high balls, or drinking straight from the bottle all have their justifications. Fair point. Yep. I, for me, it's completely uh, dependent on where I'm departing from and where I'm headed. Uh, Invariably, when I take a train back from Kagoshima, there are some nice canned shochu or or shochu one cups available in the Kagoshima Shinkansen station. So I'm usually usually taking a couple of those uh, on the train with me. My default other times might be a a canned whiskey highball. But if you're traveling up through Kansai and you've got the cart service, there is sometimes Yamazaki 12 available. Uh, One per customer, but uh, it's always a treat to get age statement Yamazaki. I must admit that I usually drink beer on Shinkansen. I think the reason why I do so is number one, it's available on the on the cart that sometimes is wheeled up and down the the aisle. 
but then also because I tend to be running late when I'm in a major train station trying to catch a bullet train. And I don't put a whole lot of thought into what I grab off the shelves at the convenience store on the first floor. It tends to just be whatever I normally grab off the shelves. So um, it's beer for me usually. That's actually a great call. That's a really good call. The next couple of questions are shochu Awamori focused. Joe from the Ishikawa Summit to See podcast has a second question. Imagine if you were buying a gift of shochu for someone who has never been to Japan and might not be used to the unique taste. What would you buy them and why? Hmm. I guess we're going... You'd have to know what they usually drink. That's right. That's right. I think if you're doing it blind, though, I think you're going with vacuum distilled rice or barley shochu just because it's so light and clean and inoffensive. Uh, yeah, that's a great answer. Or maybe I, co- I kokuto sugar as well, because it got the rum character. Um, but yeah, that's probably the direction I would go on that one. Next question is from Hakata Rick. In the same way that fine wines are often paired with a certain kind of meal, would or could the same apply to shochu? If so, what are some of your personal favorites? Yeah, I, I enjoy uh, food pairings with shochu quite a bit. And I would say the... One of the most interesting for me and unexpected was when I was introduced to drinking purple sweet potato shochu mizuwari, so with water dilution as a pairing for sushi. And I always felt that sweet potato shochu was too robust to pair with sushi. But because of that heavy dilution, what ends up showing through is the koji character. And that just goes so well with the rice and the umami and the fish. So that's one of my favorites. On the other end of the spectrum, I absolutely love yakitori. That's probably my favorite Japanese food. And that you want the big, full-bodied, rich, earthy, funky sweet potato shochu or awamuni, I think, to, to, to stand up to, to the bold flavors of the grilled chicken. Um, yeah. How about you, Christopher? Any, any food pairings you think of when it comes to shochu? Yeah, I'm going to stick with awamori, I think. Um, awamori to my mind, goes really well with a lot of Italian food. <laughs> We're talking the dairy component in a lot of Italian food, the uh, the tomato, the, the meat uh, components of a lot of these dishes, and the inherent sweetness in awamori, which often will come out when you dilute with a little bit of water and create a mizuari, just goes so well with these different layers of, you know, probably, arguably, one of the most popular cuisines in the world um, and I remember having some awamori alongside a lasagna one time I was like oh my lord this goes so well together I don't know why this isn't more of a thing and so I would encourage people to to stretch the boundaries on that in their own time. Hmm. So awamori is like the red wine of Japanese spirits? One of them. I think sweet potato shochu could grab a spot there too especially with red or purple sweet potatoes. Next question. Ben Harris asks, in your opinion, what is the most underrated shochu awamori distillery? Ooh, that's a tough one. Whatever you say, whatever your answer is, I'm going to go out and buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Doing somebody a favor here then. Jeez. Okay. Um, most underrated. You know, I'm going to say, and I, I'm just, this is just, I'm off the cuff here without thinking through it too, too much, but I don't think that Denen Distillery gets quite the respect that they might deserve. 
And I think the reason there the reasons are many. I do know that a lot of people will look askance at any distillery that uses music in any part of the production process, and that's something that they certainly do. But they were pretty early to the barrel aging game in the shochu world, and I think there's a lot of fun things that they have done in the past. I know there's a lot of innovation that they are that's percolating within their distillery as we speak. So I feel like in many ways they are underrated. Stephen, how about you? I think that I think that's a great call, Christopher, on the shochu side. I'll I'll go to Okinawa for Awamori. I would say probably Tadagawa. I mean, they're pretty ubiquitous. They're a decent-sized company, but I don't feel like I really hear people singing their praises to the degree that they probably deserve. Fair. I think they do things right, and they really, really care about the tradition and the history and, and maintaining the local culture to the point where they actually have home delivery of the ceramic pots from their aging cave to the to the homes on Miyako Island. And just maintaining those kinds of traditions, I think it, it speaks volumes to the the way that they run their business. So yeah, that would probably be mine. All right. Saki Enthusiast has two questions. The first one is, where should someone interested in shochu get started? Like someone living in the southern U.S. who likes whiskey and bourbon, what advice would you give them to get their shochu journey started and what should they drink first? Yeah, this comes back to that, what do you normally drink question, right? And if you're talking about somebody that likes whiskey or bourbon, they're probably going to be underwhelmed with most barley shochu that comes to the U.S., I think, just because of the low ABV. So in some ways, I'd almost want to take them in a different direction or maybe show them the diversity. And maybe that's, I always come back to Ichigo. That was my gateway. It's such a different expression of a barley distillate that I think it might surprise people, especially if you got one of their slightly higher ABV expressions like special or, I don't, blue's not available everywhere, but um, I don't think I do Saiten though, because that gets all the grain. I think you want that light vacuum expression, I think is what would be really interesting for for somebody new to the category. How about you, Christopher? Yeah, I think that's a great avenue to start your journey on. I think another one that's pretty easy for a lot of folks to figure out right off the bat is something in in the world of rice or kokuto sugar. Again, I f- yeah, you're right. I think we have said these things already, but particularly kokuto sugar shochu, which has a very, very light whiff of a rum to it in some cases, not always. It often is a little more mineral forward and and grassier than that. But there certainly is something very tropical that a lot of folks who who like that sort of thing and pretty much everybody's tried rum before would probably understand pretty quickly. And I think the the number of rum brands that are coming to the States, the ones that have already landed, the ones that will be coming in the next couple of years it is going to blossom at a pretty incredible rate. And so there's a lot to look forward to. And if you want to stick with barrel-aged products, then there already are, or there will be very shortly, a couple that are up around 40% that might be worth your time. So go ahead and check out Kokuto Sugar Shochu and look for anything with some color to it. Yeah, I think the uh, maybe to follow on a little bit with that is... As you're beginning your exploration, you've got a couple of resources available to you. One is Umami Mart in California, at least if you're in the US, can ship to just about everywhere. And the other thing, which I think a lot of consumers don't realize, is if you go into a store and you ask for a specific product, 
they're probably going to try to get it for you because it's a sale. At least a good liquor store, they're, they're going to realize that they're creating a customer. And I think the more people who do that, the more of these obscure Japanese spirits are going to end up in liquor stores around the world. Absolutely. Sake enthusiasts, second question. What is your end of the year Furusato Noze recommendations for shochu this year? And for people who don't know, can you explain what Furusato Noze is? Sure. So Furusato Noze is a system by which you designate your tax payment to a specific town or part of a prefecture. And in exchange, that town or that part of the prefecture sends you a gift. And you can choose what gift it is, and each gift has a price. So you're not paying retail for the gift, you're, you're paying multiples on that. So what was maybe a thousand yen bottle of shochu might cost you four or five thousand yen. But it's just sort of your gift for your tax money. You're going to pay the tax anyway. It's just a way to get something back for your tax payments that you see directly. Christopher, I don't think you've done this before, and you certainly need to. I will. <laughs> but it's a uh, it's pretty fun. You go on the there's all these websites. For me, I drill down to the prefecture and the city where the distillery is. I'm trying to track something down, and then if they've got something, then I'm happy. I buy it, and if not, I just keep digging until I find something else. And so, I'd, what I actually was able to get this year, I found Benny Sango, forty percent Kokuto sugar shochu, which is barrel aged. Nice, nice. That's one uh, best shochu in the Tokyo Whiskey and Spirits Competition the last two years, back to back. So excellent shochu. It cost me 9,000 yen. I think the shelf price is maybe just under 3,000 yen. So it's about a maybe three to four times markup, but more than happy to be able to get my hands on a bottle of that. And there's a bunch of different sweet potato shochu. There's awamori. If you have a large enough tax bill, you can even get one of the awamori pots. Nice. For the koshu, for the kusu aged awamori. But fortunately, my tax burden this year is not as high as all that. You can also pick up food. They've got whiskey. They've got I didn't see any rum, actually. Uh, I found some gin. With the whiskey, it was a lot of brands that are kind of, you're not sure what they are. <laughs> I think it's a lot of blends. I don't think there's very little single malt. And if, if there is, you're going to pay handsomely for it. They did have a Mars art, art concept edition or something like that from the Tsunuki Distillery, which I thought was pretty interesting. I may go back and add that to my shopping cart. But uh yeah, I felt like there was plenty of value to be had in, in shochu and awamori in particular. But as far as recommendations, the distillery you like or the style you like, they had good stuff from Hitoyoshi. For example, you get Mushigaishi. You get a six-pack or a 12-pack of Mushigaishi for not that much money. Uh, great handmade rice shochu. So yeah, there's some nice things on there. That might be my choice right there. I'll go check right now. Can you wait till after we're finished recording? Fine. Thanks. Okay, next question. Armando Cornejo, do you think there will be a proposal from the industry to abolish the no-color rule for shochu? I, I assume that means that shochu can't have added colors, not that you're not allowed to sell shochu that doesn't have any color. There's a color threshold. There's a limit as to how dark a shochu can be after it's aged in wood. Why? This was actually part of a settlement with the WTO, essentially the protect imported whiskeys from competition. It's a kind of a anti-competition rule that's been, was put in in a treaty with, uh, or in, into this, uh, this settlement with the WTA. It was the UK that came after Japan for un unfair trade practices. It was back in the nineties, Christopher, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, it's been there ever since. And I think that the industry would love to get rid of the rule, but I'm not sure the government wants to mess with the treaty or the trade agreement or the, you know, 
the settlement. I think we're kind of stuck with it for the time being until enough time has passed that people have forgotten what it was even there for. I don't know, Christopher, do you think there's any chance they're going to get rid of it? I'm not optimistic, quite frankly. I don't think that the whiskey interests would be in favor of that either. Some of the names that have already been uttered on this podcast, some of the big whiskey houses would not go quietly in that discussion. They would they would fight pretty hard to make sure that Honkaku Shoguchu that has been aged for any amount of time in a cask doesn't get too amber colored, too golden. Um, and then probably they will argue that it would confuse customers and... Whereas, you know, I don't think there are a whole lot of people out there today who are choosing between shochu and whiskey, one or the other. But hey, you know, that didn't stop them from making the argument 30 years ago. Sure. Daniel Avispa asks, is it okay to mix shochu with a flavored soda to have a soda wari? For example, a good quality lemonade, or are we heading into chuhai territory? Of course, it's down to personal taste, but interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, chawadi is a thing, right? Mixing with green tea. Yeah, I do that. You, yeah, you throw a little uh, sparkling water in that and you got a sparkling chawadi. And I don't think that sounds awful at all. I'm going to try that. I never thought of that. Chuhai, I think we're we're maybe just, we're splitting hairs here. But yeah, chuhai is essentially that. And there's nothing wrong with it, I think. I don't think that you need to worry at all about how you mix shochu. I think it's just finding flavors that go well together and finding something that you enjoy and are happy to pay money for. And that's basically the end of the concern, I guess. Sure. As we say often, if it's something you enjoy at a price you're willing to pay, drink it and drink it how you like it. I think the best can chew I have had is made with real awamuri rather than the korui shochu, which is essentially a low-proof vodka. Right. It was made with a Ryukyu Awamori, which gives it body and mouthfeel and more flavor than you would get from a vodka. And it was a delicious chuhai. So I have no problem with mixing Hongkaku Shoju, the single pot distilled stuff, into any kind of mixer that I'm interested in, in drinking at the time. Moving on to chuhai questions. Greg Beck asks, how did can chuhai start and why didn't they come to the States to compete with the inferior hard seltzer? That's entirely regulatory because those hard seltzers are made with malt liquor, which you can sell under a soft license, and chuhais are made with distilled spirits, which you cannot sell under soft licenses. So it's really a barrier to entry based on local uh, liquor sales regulations. Uh, I think they're coming. Uh, I think there will be more. Yabai Chuhai is already available in California, and they're planning on going national relatively soon, and those are made with Japanese korui shochu as a chuhai, so it's not the malt liquor hard seltzer. But where they're available will continue to be limited until some of those sales laws or regulations loosen up a little bit for low alcohol canned cocktails. Next question is about rum. Daniel Morales asks, what rum do you recommend for winter cocktails? Ooh, Steven, this one's for you. Yeah. Yeah, I love rum in my winter cocktails. My, my favorite is a pot distilled, barrel aged, funky rum in a hot buttered rum. You take a pat of butter, a teaspoon of sugar, a shot of rum, and top it up with a hot water. Get your kettle up to about 70 degrees Celsius, I think, and it'll make a beautiful, beautiful drink. You can top that with a little dash of cinnamon or nutmeg. This winter, I've been using Amagi, which is a, a new offering available in the States very, very recently from Honkaku Spirits. Last year, I was using nine leaves and nuri kakesu, mm. 
and I'll probably go back to those because the Yamagi is a little bit too precious to have it all go down my belly uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> in, in hot buttered rums. But hot buttered rums are gorgeous, gorgeous drinks. Really those heavy pot still rums with some age on them are just gorgeous in, in winter cocktails. Christopher, do you have an answer? I think Christopher would say Kokuto Shochu Oyuwadi. Right. It's his famous winter rum cocktail. Right. There you go. <laughs> uh, a whiskey question. Renee Lang, I remember drinking Suntory, but I don't remember which was most single malt scotch-like. Is it the Toki? Yeah, definitely not the Toki. No, n- no way. Yeah, definitely not. Say Noki to Toki. <laughs> When you get to Suntory, I think what you need to look for is their actual single malts, which are Yamazaki and Hakushu. Virtually everything else they sell is a blend or a grain whiskey. Even Hibiki, which is a lovely drink, it's still a blend of distillates. So for me, the most scotch-like is Hakushu because it's got a little bit of smoke. Yamazaki is just so fruity and easy drinking. So those are really the two from Suntory, I think, that would most be single malt scotch-like, but you're going to pay for them. They are, they are not affordable drinks right now. Christopher, anything to add? Nope. Perfect. Let me just add one thing. If you're looking for something more affordable that's still going to give you that experience, I think that Nika Super, it's not from Suntory, but it's the Nika Super is a nice blend of malt and grain whiskey from Nika. And it, it gives you the body of a, of a scotch, maybe more like a blended scotch, but it's, it's much more affordable. It comes in a pretty bottle. And moving on to other drink questions. Okay, this is a question for Stephen uh, from Casey from the Bean Pod podcast. What beers have stood out in the past year of your drinking beer after running? Is that what you do? Yeah, I run 5K and then I'm allowed to drink a beer and I have a beer bank. So I save up beers. I'll run further than I need to. And then I've got beers in the bank, uh, which I'm thankfully only doing this year and it's almost over. I've got four days left and I have four beers in my bank. So I don't think I'll be running again this year. What stood out for me, something really interesting has been the the sake beer hybrids, which have started to appear on the market here where they're using koji or they're using sake yeasts to make beers. And some of them very, very clearly are just on that edge between what's a beer and what's a sake. Also just had an absolutely beautiful Christmas stout from uh, Smog City that was just so well balanced. It didn't drink like an 11 or 12% beer. It was smooth, balanced, nice, nice flavor, mouthfeel. It was, it was an excellent beer. So maybe those are the ones that stood out for me. Next, Tavis Allen, climate change and the spirits industry, Japan, globally. What are people's thoughts, actions on the matter? Yeah, it's a big issue, obviously, just as it is with all agriculture internationally. The shochu awamori industry is going to be directly affected by this, is being directly affected by this. The one subcategory, I guess you could call it, the one ingredient that worries me the most is sweet potatoes because they degrade so quickly after harvesting because they have to be delivered so fresh unless they're frozen to the distilleries. It's not really something that you can easily source from another country. So I do really worry about this. I think even though sweet potatoes can be incredibly hardy and they can grow just about in in some of the lower quality soil that you might find, they still are prone to disease as we've seen quite recently. And I think this will only become more of a concern as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that there are efforts underway in Japanese distilleries to make things more sustainable environmentally, but I think we have a long way to go. Specifically, how is climate change affecting the sweet potato harvest? 
What are some of the issues? Well, one is the severity of the typhoons that barrel up from the south to the north and tend to hit either Okinawa or the Amami Islands or Kyushu. Sometimes they miss completely and they go straight up towards the main part of Japan. But, uh, you know, where you and I live, Rich, up in the Kanto region, those stronger, more severe, sometimes just slower storm fronts drop a whole lot more precipitation and the increased amount of water that hits those tubers, especially if it's early in the season, creates stunted growth and you get a lot more lychee flavors in in these stunted sweet potatoes that haven't really had a normal growth process. You got a product that a lot of makers aren't happy to sell and in many cases they won't even entertain the process of starting a fermentation with those sweet potatoes. So that's just one way that the industry is directly affected by climate change. Before I ask this next question, uh, there's a word I'm not familiar with, heparize. What does that mean? It's one of the uh, little, you know, the Ukon power drinks, the, the, pre, the preloading drinks that are in the convenience stores at the front. Like they're always in a little cooler case and it's all these tiny little bottles of stuff. They're the morning after drinks, right? They can be morning after, but they can also be preloading, right? can take them either way, I think. Why are they called Hipparize? I never heard that before. That's a brand name, I think. Oh, uh, okay. It's the one that like three out of four doctors recommend here in Japan. Like you, you skip the Ukon and you skip the other stuff, but this one, and I think that's why he's got this question. Okay. The question, Michael Brock, have any peer-reviewed studies been done on this Hipparize stuff? <laughs> great question. It is. And I guess as the scientist in the room, I'll, I'll take it. And I wasn't able to find actual peer-reviewed research on that brand in particular, but there is science to back the fact that the ingredients in those drinks uh, do contribute to liver health, which can help you recover from hangovers and that sort of thing. So I think it's a little bit sketchy, but I think of all of those silly little bottles that you get in the convenience store to either prevent or cure your hangover. That's the one that probably has the most sound evidence. It's actually made by a pharmaceutical company in Japan and it had to be approved by the Japanese government as an over-the-counter supplement, at least. I don't know what that means. I haven't dug into that side of uh, healthcare delivery, but um, it's reasonably well thought through, I guess. And it's easy to see in that little cooler because it has a silhouette of a liver on the label. <laughs> That's right. I think. Yeah, you can't and there's read like it. at least three different levels of that brand. I don't know what the difference is because I haven't really looked into it very closely. But they, they by price, you can tell which one is the they they claim will do the most um, safeguarding of your best friend down in the lower half of your body, abdomen, whatever. If I'm going to use one of those, I I tend to go with Hepatizae compared to the other brands. Have you ever tried that stuff, Rich? Oh, for hangover or for before drinking? Yeah, for either. No, I just look on the bottle for the label, which one's got the most caffeine if I'm like really, really sleepy, but <laughs> that's there you go. <laughs> Next question. This is, this is a comment, not a question. Bourbon is the holy grail of booze thoughts. And that's from Chris Pierce. I don't think he knows what holy grail means. <laughs> as, as we talked about at the top of the show, it's something that's unattainable or mythical and bourbon is readily available, even if it's getting more expensive. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Christopher? No, I agree. I like it. Let's, let's, let's decide this argument on technical grounds. <laughs> we'll throw that case right out of court. No merit. <laughs> oh, so moving on to personal questions. 
This must be an inside joke. Craig Fisher says, you eat that? What's he talking about? <laughs> yes, Craig. <laughs> yes, we Craig. do. We do. Yeah. At least uh, once. Yeah. Craig's favorite favorite food is ketchup. So we eat lots of things that he he wouldn't consider. We're excited to bring him over to Japan at some point in the future and uh, strap him to a chair and feed him things that probably will haunt him for the rest of his life. <laughs> so he's not an adventurous eater and he looks at what you eat and he says, I can't believe you put that in your mouth. Exactly. Basically. Uh, I'll eat anything anybody eats except for one thing. What's that? There's like one town in China where they soak eggs in virgin boy's urine. And that's the only <laughs> thing I've ever heard of that I will never, ever, ever eat. If they weren't virgins, would you consider it? No, no, it doesn't matter whose <laughs> urine it is. That's, that's irrelevant. The fact that they soak them in urine. Yeah, that's where I draw the line. I draw the line on, on urine. Sure. I draw the line in urine. I think, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm with you on that one. I do have uh, dislikes. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Sazai, for example, the Japanese snails. Okay. I've had them very well prepared and they're fine, but like not something I seek out and I certainly would never order them on my own. The next one, this is for Steven, your Yamato Zakura internship. How'd you get started? Do you know how many other foreigners are similarly involved in making spirits in Japan and how can someone get involved? It's been going back a decade now and my internship started simply because I visited the distillery and fell in love with the, the place and the people. And then I just took a chance and asked if I could internship. And Tekon said, yes, if you learn Japanese. Uh, and that was in August and I was in, dis in the distillery in October and couldn't speak any Japanese even though I'd started lessons. Uh, but now a decade later, I speak reasonably competent Japanese and I still go back every year. But it's really about building relationships. I think if you want that sort of opportunity, you need to get to know the people who are the makers and, and that ask if they need any help. Uh, language proficiency obviously helps. There are a few other foreigners, I believe, who are involved now. There was somebody working for Machida down in Amami Oshima. And then does Amami John actually do any work with the distilleries or is he doing more promotion, Christopher? I, I don't think he does anything on the floor. He may have in the past, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think he's more on the PR side. Yeah, so there, there are a few people getting into it a little bit here and there, but I think there are still uh, potentially plenty more opportunities for people who are really interested. Next question is a personal one, very personal. What do your families, immediate and extended, think about what you do? What do they drink? <laughs> yeah, uh, my family drinks. They drink a lot of wine. And I think that's probably yeah, a lot, a lot of wine. They are not surprised that I went into the booze industry full time because I started doing that when I was a teenager. So I think it's just, they're very used to it. It's, it's uh, I've kind of come full circle and they are excited actually they're supportive and i'm extremely grateful for that how about you steven most of my family doesn't drink to any great degree my brother is the other drinker in the family and he will put craft beer back like there's no tomorrow when he can get his hands on some shochu and awamori which is usually things i bring back for him he uh he does enjoy that quite a bit and i don't think anybody saw this coming i have a degree in public health and as we've said many times, drinking is not a healthy behavior. So to be involved in the alcohol business in any way, I think uh, caught people off guard. Uh, so I do try to remind people to drink responsibly to, as Christopher and I like to say, sip slowly, sip honkaku. But they've been surprisingly supportive. I don't really come from a family of risk takers or entrepreneurs. So I think 
for me to be involved in in trying to grow an entire spirits category for global consumption is just sort of not something anybody thought they'd see me doing. Okay. And Agman asks, would either of you update your book with a new edition? And if so, how? That's a great question. We've already done it, Christopher, one time. Yeah, but I guess the reason why I think this is such an interesting question is because Stephen and I have been actively working on a new book proposal that would pretty much preclude us from wanting to update either of our books again. Mm-hmm. Of course, it would be, we believe, the the be-all, end-all, kind of the introduction and the intermediate level approach book to Shouju and Awamori. While we haven't focused too much of our energy on it recently, I guess maybe this is a good time to mention that if anybody knows any agents out there that would like to be involved with getting this book across the finish line, we're talking to a couple, but we wouldn't mind talking to a couple more. So open invite to uh, literary agents to see if we can find the right publisher to get this dream project across the finish line. Yeah, no question. That's exactly what I would have said. Jeff Cioletti asks, I want to put an Ocean Eleven team together to steal the Satsuma Kiriko Christmas tree outside Kagoshima Chuo Station. You in? (laughs) I'm in. I'm in. (laughs) I've got a work visa here in Japan. I can't afford to go in the slammer. Um, It is tempting though. It's a beautiful, beautiful Christmas tree. I don't know where we would put it, but... uh... In your dorm room. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then that wraps up all our questions. All right. Great. Thank you very much, Rich. Appreciate you taking the time to to do this. Be our, what is it? A questionnaire? Questionnaire? The guy who asks the questions? Interrogator? Interrogator. There we go. It's It's been a long one. But no, this is a lot of fun. But I, I must ask Christopher, end of the year, two in the afternoon, are you sipping on anything? I am, actually. I am just having, an, and it's because I had purchased a, a small bottle of this um, when I first arrived. But I am sipping on a, on a, uh, on the rocks, a nice little glass of Yoka Koji. Nice choice. That's, that's a good one. Been feeling a little bit under the weather today. You might've heard it in my voice. Uh, so I was actually drinking hot Amazake topped up with Nomirinko, which is a drinking mirin from Komatsu Brewery and Distillery in Saga. Uh, and adding that little bit of alcohol to the Amazake was quite nice. It was very sweet though, but it, it did my throat some good. Rich, how about you? You drinking anything? Uh, corn tea. I discovered Korean corn tea the other day, and uh, I'm really, really into it. Oh, I know what you mean. I had a little koryu shochu because I have stage fright. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get you some corn shochu to try in that corn tea. That's a, that's a good idea. We... Do they actually have corn shochu? Yep. Yep. Oh, wow. I never heard of it. 100% corn shochu. It's a grain. Made by Takachiho Distillery. We were planning on putting a little care package together for you, so uh, I'll be sure that there's a bottle of that in, in the box. Cool. Thank you very much. No worries. Well, thank you and happy holidays and I hope you um, have a relaxing close out to the year, both of you. And thank you everyone out there for listening to us once again. If you have not already, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening to these episodes. It really does help others to find the show And of course, you can reach out to us directly as well on either Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. Wait, I have a question. Are are you guys moving to Mastodon? I do have a Mastodon account. 
I'm at Christopher Pellegrini at mas, what is it? Mas.to, M-A-S dot T-O. Yeah, actually, I'm not on Mastodon. I think if Twitter completely goes away, then maybe I'll move over there, but I haven't really felt the impulse to add a social media account. But in the meantime, you can find me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. And please check out our website, japandistilled.com for the show notes on this and every episode. Today's show notes are just probably just going to be the list of questions, but hey, if you're curious. Uh, and then also please tune into our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday every Tuesday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Japan Distilled. Thanks, Rich, and kanpai. 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 We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Japan.